think, you know, right now I'm very happy doing research, so I hope I could continue in a successful research program. But our department is going to be changing, is changing dramatically right now. I mean, we're in the middle of a department head search at the moment, and we have a lot of retirements that have happened, a lot of retirements coming up. And so, you know, whether I like it or not, I guess I see myself as a leader in the department. You are. Yeah, you already are. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have a friend. Tiffany Weir from Food Science and Human Nutrition. Tiffany, welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you with us as always. As we were talking about before we went live, we, we want to know about Tiffany the person and Tiffany the scholar. And we'll, we'll start with Tiffany the person. So tell us about yourself, about your family, and maybe some fond memories from along the journey before you arrived sitting in this chair this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Okay. Um, well, I'm not originally from Fort Collins. I grew up in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Uh, moved out here when my husband got a job at Colorado State University. But we've lived out here now for, well, it's been over 20 years. Kids are born out here. I remember when we first moved out, everybody had the native sticker on the back of the cars. It was a big deal like to show that you were actually from here. Now I feel like mm-hmm. I can put that because oh, my yeah. kids are native here, here, Coloradans. Here, here. <laughs> um, let's see, what else? I have two children. I have two sons. Uh, one of them is a second grader and one of them is a high schooler who's getting ready to go off to college in a couple years. Right, good. It's exciting. exciting times. Yeah. Does he have interests in particular of places or things to study or? Yeah, so he is, um, he wants to do engineering, mechanical engineering. He, uh, over COVID, uh, one of our neighbors had a bunch of cars in his yard and gave him one of the old cars. And oh, so he wow. rebuilt the car and then he started buying jet skis online um, and broken ones and like rebuilding those and reselling them and stuff. So he's very into engines. So right now he's working at the engines lab at CSU. How As a high schooler. As a high schooler. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So he's pretty, he's pretty confident about what he wants to do. And he talks about engines a lot at dinner and in the car. And I pretend to know what he's talking about <laughs> and have no idea usually. <laughs> that is awesome. So is there a tinkering gene in the family somewhere or an engineering gene? Or this, this no, is... This is all him. De novo. YouTube. Right? Yeah. Wow, Apparently you can learn anything off YouTube. So I hear. I guess I yeah. got to pay more attention, huh? I don't know. I tried to fix a dryer once watching YouTube and I ended up paying double the repair cost because I messed it up worse. So some people can't do that. I don't even think I could learn to change a light bulb on YouTube, but he's learned to rebuild engines. Wow, it works for some. So. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe right. not for everybody, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, well, that's right. great. So um, the other COVID project that we did when we weren't you know, coming to campus, my kids both did remote school last year, was we bought some property up near our house and started a farm. Oh, wow. So we built two greenhouses and have planted a peach and apple orchard. Oh, my goodness. Have a little farm stand. And on weekends, um, 
I'm harvesting and running a farm stand up below Horsetooth Mountain. So that's become kind wow. of a pro- passion project and a hobby. That's the that thing awesome. I need to pay yeah. more attention to. So where are you at exactly? So, so I if can you, go get my peaches. Yeah, if you ever go ride up um, Horsetooth Mountain Absolutely, Park, just yeah, at the yeah. base of the mountain as you pass the little bar and yeah, the yeah. bed and breakfast, uh-huh. we're on the north side of the County Road 38E up there. I will have to visit. Yeah, yeah definitely. Awesome. We do market Saturday mornings. I have a couple of colleagues from CSU. Colleen Burke is oh, one sure, that yeah, comes yeah, pretty yeah, regularly yeah. And, mm. and visits us because she's always up there hiking either Horsetooth Mountain or Soderberg. That is so, really cool. Yeah. Saturday mornings, here we come. Of course, yeah. season's getting a little long in the tooth here. but Well, we have the two greenhouses. So um, we are slowing down a little bit, but transitioning over, we're able to do greens all year long. So My goodness. we have greens. And I have five uh, nutrition students right now that are doing a service learning project where they're community partner. How fun they did a that? Halloween smoothie stand where they came up and they took produce from the farm and they made you know, don't kale me was one. It's <laughs> yeah. like a kale-based smoothie. Like uh, they that. had a witch's brew that had, you know, apples and different things from the farm. And they set up outside. And so our customers came and tried their smoothies. And they, you know, gave them recipe cards and things like that. Wow. And so the astute buyer will be out there at what time on a Saturday morning? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's, yeah, that's a good, <laughs> we're shifting hours for when I was doing, you know, we were doing nine until about 11 or noon, but people don't start showing up until about 1030 now that it's getting colder and it's darker longer. So yeah, we're, we're definitely not like, you know, rigid business model. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if the doors open, come in. Oh, nice. That's fun. How cool is that? Yeah. Great. So. So tell me more about growing up in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Family influences. You, know, you may have had moments with teachers or mentors that, that uh, continue to influence decisions you make and how you approach the you know the job and fun of teaching. Yeah. Well, my mom was a teacher. And she followed me growing up. So she was an elementary school teacher. She taught, uh, well, it was a small town in West Virginia. And so it was kindergarten through eighth grade. There was no middle school. So she would have been what would have been a middle school teacher. She taught seventh and eighth graders, but she was always there keeping an eye on me. Mm -hmm. So the teachers were our friends. Those were the people that we hung out with and had picnics with on the weekend and things like that. I feel like growing up, um, I knew every single teacher that I ever had for class, you know, outside of the classroom as as a friend. And so they definitely, I think, were probably mentors. And then when I graduated eighth grade, I thought I'd finally be rid of my mother. And she moved up to the high school. <laughs> <Of course> she, <laughs> and she, became, yeah, she became freshman and sophomore <laughs> English teacher. Nice. So, um, yeah, so I actually I had her, I believe, for freshman English. Um Again, small town, so they weren't other options. They normally wouldn't put you with your own child or parent. There was only one option, so that's what we did. And then when I was a sophomore, um, my family moved to Pennsylvania, which is where my mom and dad were from originally. They Mm -hmm. moved back there. Mm -hmm. And so then I finally got to go to a school where my mother wasn't because she, she was a substitute at that point and was teaching in different schools. But... I would, you know, I would say a lot of those teachers that I had growing up um, that were also our friends were big influences, you know, because, well, one, they knew your parents, right? You always had to behave in class and pay attention. I couldn't get away with anything ever. 
But then, you know, even outside, I couldn't use improper grammar or things like that because my mom or her friends would always be correcting me or, you know, you know better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Quizzing me, things like that. You can run, but you can't hide. Right. right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm curious, had you stayed there, what would the graduating class have been like size wise? How, How teeny was it? Maybe 20, 30 students. Yeah, it's interesting. And I yeah. asked for a reason. I, you know, K through five for me, had I stayed, it would have been 12. Wow. Okay. And it was just a so teeny you know little school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then even when I moved, it was 100, you know, which is not exactly enormous, right? So, right. Yeah. Small town memories. And, you know, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, right? So we weren't too far from, from one another. Must have been upstate New upstate, York. Upstate, yes. Had a 12, yes. 12 yeah, person yeah. class. Wasn't in the Bronx, that's yeah. for sure. No. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Those are fun memories for sure. So that, then you made a decision at some point, I'm, I'm going to college. and No, I there was never a decision. My dad was a Penn Stater, and growing up, um, I didn't know that there were other universities. <laughs> uh, honestly, wow. I mean, I thought, you know, there's other football teams, but they don't go with schools. They're just there for football. Right, they're just there for football. No, um, yeah, I, I don't remember ever making a decision. There was, you know, in Pennsylvania where we moved, um, there was a small, like, you know, kind of community college. And then there was the Penn State campus that was the local campus. Mm-hmm. There was no way I was going to the local campus. Had to go to main campus where my dad and my uncle and my dad's cousins. I mean, long tradition of sure. people going to Penn yeah. State. And so I didn't apply anywhere else. I applied for early admission, um, you know, the end of my junior year. I knew before my senior year started, that's where I was going. And I got wow. into main campus and... You know, I got there and realized, hey, there's other schools I could have looked. I visited a friend in Ohio and I was like, hey, Ohio State, that's an actual school that people (laughs) go to. (laughs) Went to Wisconsin, Madison and thought, man, this is a beautiful campus. I had no idea that (laughs) there were other places that you could go. But I mean, Penn State's a great school. So obviously I don't regret that at all. And as an undergrad, what did you study? What was your major? Yeah, so my mom wanted me to go to law school and she helped me fill out my application form to go to Penn State. So we signed up for pre-law liberal arts. Mm-hmm. And I actually started in the summer about two weeks after I graduated and went up and took a gym class. I took sailing, which was right really awesome yeah. gym class. Yeah, Penn State had the best gym classes. I had sailing and skiing and fencing. Yeah. Wow. So it was fun. Um, But yeah, I I took, you know, my English 101 and I took a gym class. And then the next semester, I promptly signed up to take a bunch of biology courses. Mm. Didn't tell my parents that, you know, those were not what the advisor had told me to take for pre-law. And then I got my (laughs) report card that first December and they said, what? Why do you have biology 101 on here? Why do you have this on here? Kind of changed my major. (laughs) So... I knew what I wanted to do, but I, well, actually I didn't, I didn't know ultimately where I was going to end up, but uh, I thought I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. You know, I thought that was cool until I started thinking a little bit more about it. And I was like, I'm going to be around dead people all the time. And I don't know if I want to do that, but mm-hmm. there might be other avenues of science that I could do that I can figure out puzzles and solve riddles without having to be in a morgue all day. Long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well said. Well said. So. But an early interest in science. It's just a matter of manifesting itself in different yeah. ways. I don't think I knew that you could do that as a career growing up. I was always interested in science and the natural world. I liked uh-huh. to hike. I was collected, you know, 
leaves and plants, but I didn't know that scientist was a job. I didn't know you could do that for a career. So I think I always liked science and science things, but you know, I thought you had to be a teacher or a vet or a pilot or something sure, sure, like that, yeah, or yeah. a lawyer. Or a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. So, so at some point in your undergraduate trajectory, I'm assuming somebody or some moment opened your eyes to this graduate school thing. Yeah, I took, well, I took an ecology class. I think it must have been my sophomore year. And the professor in this class, I don't even remember his name, but you asked about teachers that had, you know, influences. And I would definitely say that he was one because he made us read scientific literature, which typically you don't do in undergraduate courses. And I think they were probably his papers, but he was an ecologist that spent his research time in Hawaii collecting plants and studying plants. And I'm like, how do you get to do that? You know, <laughs> He's in Hawaii outside all the time. And I think that's when I realized this is something you could actually do as a career, that you could become a researcher. And call it work. Yeah. Right? And so instantly <laughs> after that class, I started looking for research positions. And my sophomore year, you know, second semester, I started working um, in a lab in the College of Ag and Plant Pathology. Mm. And my major professor studied mushrooms because Pennsylvania um, is one of the largest mushroom producers. They have a big mushroom industry over in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. And he studied what was called the LaFrance isometric virus, which can infect mushrooms and, you know, reduce yields and things like that. And this is at the dawn of like genetic engineering, basically. I hate to say that because it shows how old I am, but you know, we were, our lab was getting a gene gun, which was, you know, the top of the line technology where you could, you know, shoot. It, it really wasn't as exciting as it sounded in my mind. You know, I'm imagining this, you know, rifle that you're shooting mushrooms with genes or something. It yeah. wasn't at all like that, but you know, and we were, we were doing uh, sequencing which at the time was Sanger sequencing. And we made gels the size of the whiteboard in this room. And mm. you'd sit there with it on a light table and actually read the lines on the gels mm -hmm. and say, that's going to be an A, that's a G. <laughs> and that was my job as an undergrad was to sit there, one, to make these giant gels, and then to sit there and read all the little lines on the gel and decipher what they were. And I worked directly with a grad student and he was from Jamaica and he had this really big personality. And, you know, every time I came in, he was like, fame and glory, fame and glory, you know, come on, I'm going to put your name on a paper. Wow. And it just really motivated me. That's <laughs> That's awesome. yeah. You know, and I mean, he was super dedicated. He like slept under his desk and um, you know, was just one of those guys that was in the lab 24 seven. Mm -hmm. He slept in the lab, he ate in the lab, he was in the lab on weekends. He, you know, it's hindsight. I don't think he showered much and probably didn't have much of a social life, but it was all about fame and glory. And I like bought into it. I was like, yes, fame and glory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was it. I, there was no turning back after that. That's I continued on. I actually ended up doing my master's degree in that particular lab, the yeah. um, major advisor offered me a graduate and you know again I feel like I've kind of jumped in a stream and just let the water take me you know I was like I'm going to Penn State because it's where I'm supposed to go and then yeah. I didn't really look at grad schools I just stayed at Penn State because I got offered a position in the lab that I'd been working in and ended up staying there so you know just kind of grabbed at the opportunities I had rather than went out and looked for opportunities yeah. but yeah, I finished a master's in plant pathology. I ended up working with 
him, uh, Pete Romaine was my major professor, and then also uh, Barbara Christ, who worked with potatoes. And that's where I got interested in microbiology. And I think, you know, that's carried through even to now Indeed. because microbes are everywhere. And I could work in almost any department on campus because microbes are a part of everything. Well said. So. so the Ph.D., yeah. How did that happen? I didn't want one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I went to go work for the government after I finished my master's degree. Um, I worked for plant protection and quarantine, which are the people that inspect things that are coming into the country and looking, you know, they wanted people who had entomology backgrounds and plant pathology backgrounds because you're looking for plant diseases that might escape. And I had some really fantastic experiences working there. I joined what was called this rapid response team. And the rapid response team, you know, this this kind of comes back to my, you know, high school cop shows wanting to do the forensics is like, oh, there's an outbreak, you know, wheels up in, in 24 or whatever. And you had to pack your bag and be ready to go wherever in the country they sent you. And I was working at JFK Airport in New York. And my first rapid response um, was to go and work in Amityville, New York. So oh, they sent me my, to go look really? at trees in Amityville. That's straight out of the movies, too, isn't it? Holy <laughs> cow. <laughs> yeah, and we just went and knocked on, um, you know, people's doors and, like, walked around in their backyards inspecting their trees. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what we were looking for. It was a beetle. Do you, you're a New Yorker. Do you remember there was a, some sort of beetle infestation? They had to cut down trees. So we were looking for, you know, this beetle. And then I'm trying to think, I don't think I did any more rapid responses. But then, you know, I got married. My husband got a job out here at CSU. So I transferred to the Denver office and I was commuting from Fort Collins down to Denver and, uh, you know, got to go travel. I went to Alaska as part of the rapid response team where we did a blitz on all the FedEx flights that come in and out of Alaska I uh, spent 10 days up in Anchorage in February, which Ooh, is not wow. the time wow. that you want to be in Anchorage. Yeah. Wow. It got light at noon. It got dark at 3 p.m. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, they let us out of work at 2, which was good. So we got to see the sun for an hour every day you well, know, do good. like a little hike and, and stuff. But it was, you know, minus 28 degrees. So you didn't really want to be out too much. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get to see the northern lights, which was a little disappointing. They didn't show up that week. How do you like that? Yeah. Oh. But um, you know, went to California and tracked fruit flies. And then I got sent for summers a couple times down to Texas. And, you know, and I could have just stayed in Denver. But at that time, it was around the time of the change in regime. So we went from Clinton to Bush. And we'd been in the Bush years for a couple years. And so they were changing what my job was going to be. And I was going to become more of like a police officer rather than like a, a scientist. Kind of thing yeah. So um, I think I just went to work one day and said I quit. Didn't really have a plan. Didn't know what I was going to do next. Wow. And there was a professor that I knew from CSU because they had a cooperative agreement with us and I'd worked with him through my role in AFIS and he said, well, I'll hire you on as a research assistant. So this was Bill Brown. I don't know oh, if yeah, you knew yeah. Bill sure. Brown. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So I came up to work for Bill Brown and he died four months later. <laughs> and wow. So I'd quit my job and, you know, got hired by somebody who passed away then rather quickly and just said, well, I'm, I'm here. I might as well start a PhD program. So I worked actually for my husband as a technician in his department, you know, in his lab for a while, and then started a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And who was your mentor on that PhD? 
process. Herbert Schweitzer. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I remember yeah. him too. Yes, he's gone now course, too. Yeah. He's in Florida, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you completed your CMB PhD. I did. And how did yeah. our friends in nutrition get fortunate enough to recruit you to their department? I'm not entirely certain how that went down, but we have a fermentation and science and technology program, but right? We didn't back and then. yeah, well, yeah. they were they were in talks, right? Uh-huh. So the the charge had been made by Chris Melby, and the food scientists that were in the department at the time said, well, you know, this brewing class that Jack Avens teaches is really popular. So they, um, you know, said we could turn this into a major and we think it would be a big deal. But of course, you know, our department focuses on nutrition and health and it felt like a big disconnect. And at that point, I'd finished my Ph.D. I spent some time in Peru doing a postdoc type. It was more of a visiting scientist type position. And I was working on microbial ecology. So this is when all the sequencing technologies came out that allowed us to start looking at these mixed microbial communities. And um, when I came back, I ended up sharing an office with Elizabeth Bryan and the two of us started talking and I was like, soil microbes, poop microbes, it's all the same. It doesn't yeah. matter what media you're working in. And this is kind of comes back to, you know, if you're working with microbes, they're everywhere. You could Indeed. do just about anything. So Elizabeth and I started working together on a clinical trial looking at how rice bran consumption altered the gut microbiota and colorectal cancer survivors. And at this point, I had been given you know, a non-tenure track position in horticulture and was working on this with Elizabeth. So Chris Melby wanted to bring in a health-related aspect to the fermentation science so that it wasn't just going to be about beer. And I'm working on fermentation in the gut and looking at how the food we eat gets fermented and turned into compounds Mm -hmm. that can benefit human health. And so I think, you know, there ended up ended up in nutrition to kind of bring legitimacy to the fermentation science program. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way I tell it to my students that I know you guys aren't here to study gut health, but you know, this is why you're in a nutrition department because this is the health aspect of fermentation. We're fortunate Dr. Milby had some foresight for sure. (laughs) So you're now a tenured professor. I know they haven't kicked me out yet. (laughs) Nice trajectory. And so this is a natural transition into, into the scholar part of our conversation, right? So yeah. in terms of what you've got going on now, your lab collaborators, et cetera, I'm just interested in your sharing with the listeners what excites you the most about your current research activities. Yeah, it's never a dull day, right? Every day is different. I think when you're doing research and, you know, when you're doing research well, You're not looking to prove something that you already know. You're looking to find the answer to something that you don't know. And so as long as you're following the data and going where it takes you, then you're always doing different things. And you're always kind of like looking for that next piece to the puzzle. And I've, you know, I've always enjoyed doing puzzles and kind of putting all those pieces together. And then you start to see the big picture. And so I think that's what I really enjoy about doing research and, you know, in my career, I may only get to put together one tiny little corner of a puzzle, but it's it's still exciting to be able to put those pieces together. And I also like that I span um, 
translational, you know, I do translational work. So I span these preclinical models, work in mice and cell cultures and things like that. But I also have a clinical arm to my research. And so everything always comes back to, okay, can we modify the gut microbiota to improve cardiovascular outcomes in mice? Great. But does this actually matter to a human population? And so going back and forth between humans and mice, um, you know, I feel like I'm able to keep what I'm doing relevant. So when, when you think about you and your team, your, your trainees, postdocs, students, et cetera, can you, and it, we realize there's no such thing as a typical day. You just alluded to that. Every, every day is a little bit different, but, uh, you know, a day in the life of the Rear Lab team. Yeah. Great. And well, feel free to tell us who's on your team. We're always interested in, you know. Okay. Well, lab, right? <laughs> there. I wouldn't say there's a weird lab because I collaborate a lot, you know, yeah. and I, I always have. I started initially, you know, with the Ryan Lab and working very closely with Elizabeth Ryan. And now, you know, I work very closely with Chris Gentile and Sarah Johnson in particular, are my two main collaborators. Mm-hmm. And with Chris, it's on the uh, preclinical work and then with Sarah, it's more of the clinical work. And when I say, you know, looking at changing the gut microbiota to modulate cardiovascular disease, I'm the microbiota part of that and they're the cardiovascular disease part of that. And so, you know, obviously collectively, in fact, Chris and I, um, you know, hold joint, we have a joint lab meeting, we co-advise students. And so really it's kind of the weird genteel lab or genteel weird, depending on who you ask, right? But we have, Chris and I right now are advising um, two and a half grad students. One is accepted and she's actually working in the lab, but she's deferred until she can get her visa situation figured out because she's from China. So she's trying to get the student visa status and then she'll start officially. Mm -hmm. We'll have three, you know, graduate students together. We have a couple undergraduate students. Um, Sarah and I share a graduate student as well. So, you know, they've all been amazing helping keep the research going, especially through COVID. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. We're, we're interested in how people respond to uh, unanticipated challenges like that. So what has been the impact on, on your activities? We've been able to move forward, um, you know, definitely at a much slower pace. And the students have had to take on a lot more autonomy and a lot more responsibility because we, you know, we really were told don't come to campus, don't be in your offices unless you absolutely need to. And yet, you know, especially when you're doing studies with animals, the human studies we were able to kind of put on hold and not do for a while. But you've got animals over in the vivarium, they still need to be cared for. And they, you know, those experiments needed to be continued. And so the students came in when no one else was and you know, were really the ones that kept the work going and carried everything forward. And without them, I don't know where we would be right now. Yeah, it was a major disruption in every sense of the word, wasn't it? I mean, you yeah. know, we walked into places we never even imagined. Permission to go back into my own lab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Very unusual, that's for sure. Um, so who funds your work? Lots of people. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Lots of funding. Yeah. So um, the work that Chris and I do, we are PIs, multi-PIs, co-PIs on um, American Heart Association funding and National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. And then for the clinical work, um, I work with several companies. So Deerland Probiotics and Enzymes has been funding some work. Uh, Chris Bell and I from Health and Exercise Science have some collaborative projects together as well. And those have been funded by a CBD company down in Denver. 
We also are funded by a group that's called Think Healthy LLC to do study on magnesium. So a lot of the clinical work is typically funded by companies and things like that. Have some internal funding from the Colorado Ag Experiment Station for you know projects that I haven't been able to develop enough to try to get big funding, but hopefully down the road we will. And, and in, a, in the midst of all this mentoring and scholarly activity you wear a couple other hats on campus i think you so tell us what what else occupies you on campus what else occupy well i just this july became co-coordinator of the microbiome network with mike wilkins Mm -hmm. and tonight uh this afternoon at four is going to be our first in-person event for the microbiome network which i'm excited to see that up and going again they had Mars sponsored some research, the Mars Research Institute, and we have three people that were awarded Mars grants over COVID. And so they're going to present their proposal and kind of progress to date on where they've gotten with the money that we were that we awarded them through the microbiome network. That's great. Yeah. Classroom time. What do you what do you teach? What do I teach? I teach in the fermentation program. So I teach fermentation microbiology. Uh I do not know how to brew beer. Um, I <laughs> have made cider at home and uh, it was really dry. I liked it. My husband did not, you know, but I, I do a lot of fermented foods and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm willing to go on a limb and say there's a YouTube video somewhere that would show you how to brew beer. Oh, I'm sure there is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm having fun. I actually, the Noma fermentation book from that restaurant, Noma, is amazing. I've been taking things from the farm and trying to, you know, experiment, doing a lot of fermentations, the lacto fermentations. I'm doing black garlic right now and mm. lacto tomatoes, wow. lacto gooseberries, apple cider vinegar. My goodness. Um, yeah. So I do, I do do a lot of fermentations, but I, you know, I just, I don't brew beer, but I talk about all the microorganisms that brew beer. People people don't brew beer, right? The microbes are the ones that are producing all the alcohols. Yeah. So I know, I know all the microbes. We're, we're, you know, we're close, the microbes and I, but (laughs) I just don't, you know, I'm not as familiar with the brewing process. So I also teach um, a course for graduate students on probiotics and another course on um, personalized nutrition, focusing on how we can utilize what we know about the gut microbiota and the metabolites that are produced by the gut microbiota to be able to really, you know, look at people's genetics, at their, um, you know, conditions, things like that, and focus in on what foods they should be eating for optimizing their health. It's interesting because I think it's a, you know, pretty big pie in the sky to be able to talk about personalized medicine and personalized nutrition. I don't know if I'll see it to the level that I'd like to see it in my lifetime, but there has been a burgeoning interest in this. And Matt Matt knows this pretty intimately. We spent a lot of time on the phone and Zoom last year. The NIH um, is putting millions and millions of dollars now towards research and personalized nutrition. And we applied for a grant to, you know, do some of the metabolomics. We didn't unfortunately get the grant, but I'm just excited that it's, you know, that they are putting a lot of money towards this. The Europeans are putting a lot of money towards this. 
And it's not just, you know, these occasional private institutes in La Jolla and stuff that are focusing on this personalized nutrition. So I think it's going to make some really great strides in my lifetime. I don't think that it'll be, you know, like you give a blood and a poop sample and here's your ideal diet. It's going to be printed out on a, you know, printout for you. But but we're getting there. Yes. And you're a part of that. And I'm, I'm a part. I'm, I'm the tiny, tiny little corner <laughs> of the puzzle. Yes. A contributor. I'm an edge. Yes. That's so. awesome. And in your spare time, you're a significant contributor to the college's research day activities. One of those many things that Tiffany does that goes unnoticed by some people, but noticed and appreciated by others. So we just left a meeting where we're talking about year three, right? And My whole contribution is just to goad you so well, that you work harder, right? It's a friendly competition. <laughs> yes. That's part of what makes it fun, right? right. That's the best part. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and you're still involved with CMB program as well, last I checked, right? Yes, I am. I'm the research chair for CMB. Talk about spare time. Huh? That's yeah. a lot of hats. Yes. <laughs> and a farmer. And, and a, a farmer. <laughs> yeah. And, and a forager. That's probably my other big hobby that I enjoy oh. is foraging. Would you mind elaborating about that? Yeah, so mushroom hunting. Um, you know, now, it's I have actually... to interrupt and forgive me because I was kind of hoping this would come up. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, for many years I taught an undergrad class here at CSU and would, you know, use that phrase. Has anybody heard the term mushroom hunting? And most people, would, unless they were from the Midwest or yeah. look at me like, you know, do you get your orange jacket out and tiptoe up on it? And <laughs> these things, it's, it's interesting. But it's, in fact, it's quite fun and and there's huge groups of people that do it. Indeed. I mean, you know, once you start doing it, you're walking, you can recognize another forager in the forest. They're the ones that, you know, are carrying baskets. And you're like, why are you carrying a basket in a hike? Yeah. <laughs> you can see them, you know, turning over every leaf and, and things like that. So you can definitely tell other foragers. And you need to know what you're doing because if you grab the wrong ones. Yeah, you could die. It is, yeah, this is my like adrenaline wow. rush. You know, I'm not, you know, jumping out of helicopters and, <laughs> skiing down mountains and you know doing stuff like what you and chris melby like to do mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. yeah in fact i turned around halfway up long's peak with chris melby <laughs> i said this is it i That's i don't want to die today this is this is high enough so um yeah, but that that's my adrenaline rush. Just like, if I eat this, am I going to die? But no, really, um, you have to be 100% certain. You obviously wouldn't touch anything that you don't know what it is. So I have to ask you to hop into the flash forward machine. Imagine we're five years down the road. What's Tiffany up to? National Academy, man. Right on. Right on. <laughs> Love to hear it. I like it. Love to hear that. No, just kidding. Uh, that would be awesome, but... Yeah, probably not actually in the cards. I think, you know, right now um, I'm very happy doing research. So I hope I could continue in a successful research program. NIH funding is going to end here in a year and a half, two years. So starting to look towards renewal. But our department is going to be changing, is changing dramatically right now. I mean, it we're sure in the middle of a department head mm -hmm. search at the moment. And we have a lot of retirements that have happened, a lot of retirements coming up. And so, you know, whether I like it or not, I guess I see myself as a leader in the department. You are. So. Yeah, you already are. <laughs> you Definitely. Are. You know, my position occasionally obliges me to check on metrics, right? And, and so on Google Scholar, I'm not aware of anybody in the college that has more citations than Tiffany Weir. Really? Yes. So... 
Congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> no small thing. I've got an active college. And we all know that some people aren't, you know, in there, right, invisible. But, um, yeah, 10,000 plus citations, which is wow. quite nice. Yes. No so, idea. Yeah. I pay attention to these things. So good for you. We have two more questions. I want to talk a little bit about your impressions of life in the College of Health and Human Sciences in particular. What are the key things that appeal to you about being part of that particular community on campus? Yeah, I feel like our college is somewhat of a collection in terms of, you know, having to find the common threads. And I really love what Lisa has done with the research day to try to bring the college together. I feel like this is the first time that I've actually met people from, you know, I mean, health and exercise science, we tend to collaborate a lot with them. I'm on, you know, committees over there, but the rest of the groups in the college, I haven't had as many interactions with. And so I, I felt like that was a great way to see what else is going on in our college, but to start making those connections about, you know, how does our work intersect with that work? What are the overarching themes? And I, I think that's great because I think that what we do really touches on every aspect of everyday lives. It's an aptly named college, I think, you know, upon reflection. Health and Human Sciences is expansive by definition, and, and yet they're, yeah. you know, hard to disentangle, really. And why, why would you want to in some ways, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like design and merchandising, you know, I always thought about that, like fashion shows or what, what does that have to do with what I do? And then, you know, you go to the research day and you see they're making antimicrobial fabrics. Exactly. So yeah, that's, exactly. you know, I'm all about that. Yeah, that's been your language. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Or using interesting materials like, you know, mushroom scobies from kombucha and things like that to yeah. turn it into materials. And so, yeah, I, you know, you, you start to see those connections and I think, Without, you know, the research day, I probably wouldn't have had that ability to interact with other people in the college and really find out what it is that everybody else is doing and how cool all their stuff is. For sure. So. There's a lot of neat stuff going on, for sure. Yeah. The next layer up is, is this institution, Colorado State University, which is a land grant. Mm -hmm. And that, that particular vision matters. We, we take it seriously. And so I'm, I'm interested in your reflections on being an academics and a scholar and a teacher and a member of a community at a land grant institution. Yeah. That's, boy, that's a tougher question, I guess, mm -hmm. because I don't necessarily think about it, you know, from that perspective always, I think we tend to put ourselves into our silos. And I, you know, I do reach out in terms of cell and molecular biology is an interdisciplinary program. Mm -hmm. um, the microbiome network, we actually have faculty from, I believe every college is involved in the network. We even, when we had a, a cluster hire, so this was from funding from the VPR and our final position that we had from this cluster hire we hired somebody from the English department and, you know, they talk about policy and communications and things like that related to the microbiome because it's really a big and upcoming thing. You've got the aerobiome folks, which just got, you know, huge grant to study the aerobiome and we have the soil biome and we have the human biome. And so you need people to be able to communicate why that's important and to figure out, do we need policies around this and stuff? And so that's what Erica does. And, so I, I think that's really cool. You start to, you know, again, see how you fit into this bigger picture when you're working with all these different groups. I will say, you know, being at a land grant university, 
is difficult sometimes when you are doing clinical work because you don't have access to the resources that medical schools have mm -hmm. in terms of clinical populations. But you also, I feel like, are a little bit more supported because there's more of a teaching mission than if you were at a medical school. And so, yeah, I'm not worrying about 50% of my salary coming from grants. I don't, I, I can actually focus on teaching and, you know, doing research and interacting with students instead of locked up in my office writing grants just to cover my salary all day I'll long. So. I'll say it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it seems to me too, as you described your trajectory today, you had some pretty important experiences that give you an appreciation of this land grant mission that many of us that were maybe a little more linear mm -hmm. never had, that your reflections on Texas, you know, and, and we, we often can be in our ivory towers and not realize the impact that, that work we do or policy suggestions we make would have on a farmer or a rancher or what have you. And so we, I think those have been really interesting experiences. Not all of us I would say get to have, you might laugh, you know, get to have, had, had to go through is another yeah. way to, yeah. to phrase it. But I think it, it gives you a more expansive vision, right? I think it's, it's uh, colorful experiences, but also neat ones, yeah. right? Help us to, to think about who are we and what our charge is as members of a land-grant institution. Although I'll also say that, you know, I really only have experience with land-grant institutions mm -hmm. because Penn State right, is also exactly. a land-grant institution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I guess I take that for granted, too, because I, I don't have that comparison of what is it like not being in a land-grant institution and what is that experience. And so mm -hmm. I guess I don't often think about it, but... You know, especially being in nutrition and nutrition is, you know, food and food is agriculture. And, you know, agriculture is really a big drive of the land grant institutions. And so I think that probably a lot of non land grant universities maybe don't even have nutrition departments. Mm -hmm. There are some universities that don't. And right. so I think all those things have shaped my experience, but in ways that I haven't really thought about. Yeah. Well, we're delighted you're able to spend a few minutes with us today. Time has slipped through our fingers, and we're going to have to let you go. Okay. But thank you again for coming to join us. And for the rest of the history of the college, you can claim that I was the food science and human nutrition rep on season one. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so thanks, Tiffany. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. And that's our show. As always, thank you for listening to Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to check out our other episodes. If you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, visit our website chhs.colostate.edu.